Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On July 12th, the California State Board of Education adopted a new math framework that will affect the way math is taught for nearly 6 million students in California public schools and has the potential to influence the way math is taught at the national level. The framework has attracted considerable controversy, so I thought I would invite two of the framework's critics, Jelani Nelson and Tom Loveless, onto the podcast to discuss it. Jelani Nelson is a professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at UC Berkeley, and Tom Loveless is an education researcher and former senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Jelani Nelson, Tom Loveless, welcome to the report card. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you. Good to be here. All right, Tom, there's been a lot of controversy over this California math framework, and we're going to get into all that. But first, let's start with the basics. What is a math framework? How does it differ from curriculum or from standards? Math frameworks are supposed to provide some guidance to local educators, both districts and schools, on how to implement standards, so how to achieve standards. And they've been around for a very long time. The oldest California framework I have is from 1962, and it's in social studies. So they've been around, you know, at least 60 years. Originally, they were actually both a framework document offering guidance and also a standards document. And then in the 1990s, the two split off, and we now have separate standards, which are common core, and uh, then a framework. So there have been some major changes to the California math framework. Tom, Jelani, can you summarize them? Well, the previous framework, which was adopted in 2013, was a common core framework, but it gave much different guidance than this document. So what this document did was elevate the way in which mathematics is taught and especially through in K through eight. And I'm going to pretty much just focus on K eight and let Jelani talk about secondary math. Um, what it did was it came up with this notion of big ideas and it organized all instruction around big ideas. And what that does is put all of the standards, which in common core are very, very specific. You know, kids are supposed to learn their basic facts in addition by the end of second grade. They're supposed to know their basic facts from memory in multiplication by the end of third grade. And all of that kind of content was placed in the background. And this notion of big ideas was brought to the fore. So that was the biggest difference. It's an inquiry-based approach to teaching, and it's not as content-focused as the previous framework. Jelani? So Tom said he'll talk about the, the lower grades. For high school, kind of when version one came out, they were strongly against acceleration, right? So there were two main things that I think were, were especially controversial. One was being against acceleration, saying, look, uh, you know, they, they couched everything in terms of, you know, social justice and equity. And they said, you know, what percent of students are taking algebra one in eighth grade versus ninth grade who are you know, amongst the black students, amongst the white students, amongst the Asian students? Oh, look, we have these big discrepancies. Therefore, acceleration itself is a source of inequity and we should remove it, right? So they, they were strongly recommending in version one, uh, which came out more than two years ago, that no one should be able to access algebra one in eighth grade. And you know that's something that had already been launched in San Francisco in 2014, okay? 
Um, so they were kind of modeling it after that. So that was one thing that was very controversial and got a lot of pushback. The second thing was, you know, and this is, this is kind of a caricature, but, you know, let me go with it to explain. So um, the idea is algebra, geometry, trigonometry. You know, we've been teaching kids this stuff for hundreds of years. Hasn't the world changed since then? We have chat GPT now. We have AI. We have data science. We should be teaching kids data science, right? So that was another thing that they were pitching was alternate pathways through high school math, where instead of taking some traditional math, especially algebra two, you would take data science instead. So that was also very controversial because, you know, the fact of the matter is there are already high school data science classes that have been produced in the state of California. The two most popular are called IDS, stands for Intro to Data Science, and U-Cubed Explorations in Data Science. And you look at these courses and they are just very math light. I mean, you look at the first two, I mean, some of it is it really feels like it's not even, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's definitely not covering the state standards that are required for high school math. Yeah, it's more math appreciation than mathematics. I would agree with that. So I think it's safe to say, Tom, Jelani, both of you are critical of parts of this framework, but let me ask what the framework does well on its own merits. The California Department of Education has stated the following. California is committed to achieving excellence in math, teaching, and learning through curriculum and instruction approaches that are grounded in research and reflective of best practices across the globe. The mathematics framework provides guidance for mathematics learning for all students at all levels of math, including calculus. And it ensures students have a wide variety of options, including pursuing science, technology, engineering, mathematics, STEM, in college and career. So I want to take these one at a time. Tom, I'll start with you. From your perspective, do you think it does promote excellence in math teaching and learning? No, it doesn't. And let me focus on one of the assertions in what you just read. The fact of international high-achieving countries, Singapore is the highest-achieving country in any of the international assessments, and especially on TIMS, which is a content-oriented test. PISA, not so much a content-oriented test, but Singapore does well on both. And these are international standardized tests that all kinds of countries take with representative samples. Correct. And the first the first ones were given in the 1960s. So we have a lot of data going back a, a very long time. Singapore's math standards are very slim. They're very compact. They're understandable. And there are math programs. There's one called uh, Math and Focus, and it's based on the Singaporean math standards. That particular textbook series, by the way, has been uh, evaluated in randomized control trials three different times. And each time there were massive effects. So it's it's been shown to be a very effective program. That particular textbook, Math and Focus, is not compatible with Common Core math standards. So it will not be used in California. And the idea that somehow this framework is going to be competitive with other countries, it just simply isn't false. So we're, we're not adopting curriculum like other countries have that score high on the international math assessments. Jelani, from your perspective, I mean, one of the first claims in this statement is it, it promotes excellence in math teaching and learning. 
what's your take on that particular claim? You know, I, I think there were some kernels of, uh, of good ideas somewhere where, you know, let me, let me try to say, you know, the, the, the most positive things first, right. Um, this idea that math should be engaging, that students should understand why they're learning what they're learning. Like this, you know, the big ideas that Tom is mentioning. I mean, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to big ideas. I mean, I'm not opposed to the idea that a student can connect the algebra two they're learning to data science and see how, you know, data science can make use of algebra two and give them examples that, you know, ground what they're learning in, in interesting things. But it's just that the, the math framework as written was just dominated by this fluff, right? And also dominated by certain fantasies, like this idea, you know, they give, they give uh, example trajectories of high school students through math in high school. And you know, there's an example of the student Inez. Inez, in her third year, takes data science. And then her fourth year takes pre-calculus. It's like, you know, pre-calculus has algebra two as a prereq. And the data science courses that exist don't cover that content. So how is Inez going to be ready for pre-calculus, right? So there, there's, there are a lot of leaps and fantasies, I think, that, that still remain in the framework that got, that got adopted. One of the claims the California Department of Education makes is that it's grounded in research. Tom, is that is that a fair characterization? Um, no, it's really not grounded in research. And a lot of, as Jelani mentioned earlier, a lot of the research that's cited in the framework is actually mischaracterized. The findings in some cases are the exact opposite of what the framework claims the findings were. So no, it's not grounded in research. I focused on a couple of studies in some writings that I've done, and the research is quite poor. You know, I wrote an article for Education Next that focused on uh, some summer camps that U-Cubed ran, and they were claiming multiple years of progress in just four or five-week summer camps, which is absurd on its face. It doesn't happen. That would be a miracle and miracles just don't happen like that. So, uh, no, the research is quite poor that's cited in the framework. Jelani mentioned Brian Conrad has a website that's dedicated to showing how some of this research is mischaracterized, and that's what I found when I went through the various studies that are mentioned. Jelani, quick question on this, just again, picking on this interesting quote, which is really broad based. And then it specifically says, including calculus, including calculus, as if it needs to be drawn out that this new framework includes calculus. Why would they point that out? And is there some effect that this new framework would have on rates of calculus taking in California high schools? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason they pointed it out explicitly is because there was so much pushback by academics and parents who were worried that uh, kids would not be able to reach calculus in high school and would not be, you know, as ready for majors in, in a quantitative degrees. So I think they put that there to placate people. So I, I should mention there were three versions of this framework, right? Version one came out in 2021, version two came out last year, then version three was finally put out uh, in July and adopted 10, 10, 11 days later. And, you know, what's changed, I think, is as I mentioned, version one was very strictly against this acceleration idea, which is the standard way people reach calculus in high school. And I think version three now basically leaves it to the school districts, right? So, you know, yes, they can say, yeah, we are allowing school districts to, you know, allow, you know, to have acceleration to make it easier for students to reach calculus. It's up to the district now, right? So they kind of offloaded the responsibility to the districts. 
So I've been saying this like, well, the California framework did this. But of course, there are people who came up with the California framework. Tom, who was it that produced this? Or was it the California Department of Education? Was it some committee? Did this come from a particular set of academics? I mean, where is the driving force behind this framework? It came from a committee. The committee consisted of five people. I think it's it's more clarifying to think of the sort of intellectual wellsprings of the framework. And that is certainly U-Cubed, which is a math reform organization based at Stanford. Joe Bowler, who was on the uh, framework committee and is a longtime math reformer and an, also an activist against tracking. So that explains some of the other portions of the framework. Um, Joe Bowler is the co-director of U-Cube. So if you want to find out, for instance, the hostility towards calculus, calculus, U-Cube has campaigned for years against calculus being sort of the endpoint that people think of uh, for the secondary mathematics and preparation for college. And U-Cube's always been in favor of alternatives to that. They've also been hostile to memorizing basic facts and memorizing the procedures of standard algorithms. So many of the kind of surface features that people talk about in relation to the framework, they had their origins intellectually at U-Cubed. Jelani, it's fair to say the framework has attracted a fair amount of controversy can you just walk us through how this controversy came through? You know, who were the folks that were a little bit alarmed? Who were those that were saying, whoa, 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 we should push back on these things? Right. So let me give a brief, abridged history of, of the pushback. So version one of the framework came out early 2021. And, you know, it was, I mean, chapter one, the intro was all about social justice and equity and, you know, social justice infused math, et cetera. So... In the summer of 2021, there was an open letter by folks at the Independent Institute that really pushed back against the framework and basically said, you know, a big part of their complaint was that, you know, math is math. Well, you know, why are we, you know, distracting math with all the social justice mumbo jumbo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in my opinion, I think that the folks who were part of the writing team, you know, at least one of them who Tom mentioned, Joe Bowler, you know, had an agenda. and the wrapping it in the social justice stuff was a distraction and really was a booby trap because as soon as people attack it on that, it now becomes this culture war political thing, right? Where, uh, you know, she was ridiculed on Tucker Carlson over the social justice infused math. And then she could point to that. She had her own open letter addressed to Governor Newsom saying, basically saying, look at who's criticizing me. It's these right wing MAGA extremists. You know, clearly we must be doing something right. And then she had her own, you know, support, support group signing her letter. So it immediately became political. Then in like late November, I want to say, I and three others, Adrian Mims, who's the founder and CEO of the Calculus Project, uh, Boaz Barak, who's the director of undergraduate studies in computer science at Harvard, and Edith Cohen, who's a research scientist at Google, you know, we actually went through and ignored the politics and just looked more closely at the math, especially at the high school level, at the data science, at the anti-acceleration and, you know, we had our own open letter, which didn't touch on the social justice stuff at all. Our main, you know, we had two main threads. We said, look, this business of anti-acceleration is not pro-equity because look at San Francisco. San Francisco did that. And guess what? 30% of kids in San Francisco go to private school. 
Okay. So if you've got acceleration opportunities from the public schools, what's going to happen is the people with resources are going to pay, pay their way around that. And the people who get stuck are those without resources. That's the opposite of equity. Okay. So that was, that was one of our complaints. The other was about the data science saying, look, you know, we've looked at these data science courses. We looked at the U-Cubed one. We looked at the IDS. These are very lightweight courses. They don't align. They don't meet the state standards for a third year math course. And, and, and the unfortunate thing is not only do they not meet the state standards, but they're being pitched as, oh, look, data science is this great opportunity to get jobs. That's where the future is. Kids who go the data science route are going to be the best prepared for STEM, right? Like that's how they're marketing it, but it's completely false marketing. And we were telling, you know, in our open letter, we were telling the public, look, people who go this route and take this instead of the traditional math courses are just going to be, you know, they're going to hit a dead end. They're not going to be prepared for STEM or quantitative majors in college. And many of them don't realize it, right? Because it's being marketed the opposite of what it really is. So that was the second threat of pushback that happened. Um, and then I think where it got really controversial was, you know, I was just doing a lot of talking to people, talking to deans at Cal States, talking to people at the UC, other faculty, just kind of building a grassroots understanding of what the problems are. And, you know, one day, this was uh, late March in 2022, I was, you know, I was checking my, my Twitter feed and I saw, I saw this uh, consulting contract that one of the CM off, CMF authors, Joe Bowler, had with Oxnard School District, okay? And that consulting contract was uh, to talk to their teachers on Zoom and basically give them some advice on growth, growth mindset. And what really alarmed me was Oxnard School District is like 95 plus percent minority serving, mostly Latino, more than 80% free reduced lunch. So we're talking low income families. And the money she was charging them was $5,000 an hour, right? To talk to these teachers on Zoom. And it's being paid by a grant that the school district got from the California Department of Education. So I was upset reading that because first I thought, is this even real? And then I found it on the school district website myself and confirmed that it was real. And it angered me because, you know, the writing team was saying that everything we're doing is for social justice. It's for equity. We're trying to help the black students. We're trying to help the Latino students. You're charging $5,000 an hour to talk on Zoom, right? That sounds like exploitation to me. So I called that out on Twitter. And then, you know, I woke up to an email the next morning from Bowler, dear Professor Nelson, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I'm if only, I know you've been a critic of my guidelines, the framework, if only I'd reached out, we could have discussed your concerns. Now the sharing of my private information is being taken up by police and lawyers. I cannot believe you're participating in spreading misinformation and harassing me online, right? So I was being accused of a crime, right? I mean, harassment is an actual misdemeanor. So I took a screenshot of that email and tweeted that, okay? And then that went viral and that got a lot of attention. It was a little stressful for a moment, but that, I think that's where... Thing, I mean, it was, there was already controversy. There were already these open letters. And then it became like, you know, front page of the New York Post and on, in the Daily Mail, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, it was, it was stressful for me at the moment, but it was also a blessing in disguise because I think it made people pay attention to what was happening. A lot of this was happening under the radar. People weren't really paying attention to the open letters, but now people are like, oh, what's going on here? And actually reading about reading about what's what's the math in this thing? Oh, what are the data science courses? Um, and then, you know, it ended up leading to an open letter signed by almost 450 California faculty saying, no, these data science courses are a bad idea to replace Algebra 2, signed by leaders even in data science, the founding director of data science at UC San Diego, the dean of data science at UC Berkeley, 
the head of da- the Data Science Institute at Stanford, her own institution, right? And then the Dean of Data Science at UC Berkeley co-authored an op-ed in the LA Times urging the California government to not adopt these di- guidelines that were supporting or promoting data science in place of Algebra 2. So th- I think that's pretty damning, right? That you know, you're talking about data science being the future. The Dean of Data Science at the state flagship university, public university, is saying this is a bad idea. It doesn't look good. So I think all that pushback really led to them delaying the adoption of the framework by a year. So let me just advocate for the devil here for a moment. Um, One thing some folks might say is, look, it's not that big of a deal. These aren't even binding, right? School districts don't have to follow these. Tom, to somebody who says, look, they're not binding, how would you respond to say, yeah, they still matter? Well, they still matter in terms of uh, giving guidance, like I said, to local districts. And what they'll do is they give political cover for education leaders downstream. So if you have an uh, of someone who's a rabid anti-tracking district administrator, they'll grab hold of any kind of guidance that comes from the state and say, look, the state is, you know, obviously urging us to uh, slow down in terms of accelerating any students. So that's one aspect of this is that uh, downstream you get political actors who then take advantage of these bad signals that come from the state. Um, let me let me add one more thing here, and that is, uh, you know, Jelani mentioned he likes big ideas. I like big ideas too. And and certainly organizing math in a way that's engaging for students is a very important um, goal. But these ideas are not new. There is nothing in the California math framework that hasn't been around for 100 years. And math reformers have been um, urging the kinds of changes you see in the California math framework off and on for over a century. And they have been tried and they were ineffective. And the people who, the kids who really paid a price when we go down the road of these constructivist uh, math reforms, as Jelani pointed out, they tend to be kids who rely on schools to learn math. So uh, the kids who benefit are the ones who can go into the private sector and then purchase tutoring or purchase uh, private schooling, and they do fine. But it's the kids who uh, do well at math, want to accelerate, their parents want to be able to accelerate them. They're the ones who pay a price for when we cap uh, opportunities and don't allow them to move forward. Can I, can I quickly add something to that? Go for it. Two very short things that are concrete, okay? So, you know, I, I just saw this on, on Twitter from Edith Cohen, who co-authored an open letter with me. Um, Oakland Unified School District, right? Recently, I think last year, removed access to middle school algebra one. And what did they cite in this decision? The California math framework. Palo Alto Unified School District was recently sued by parents. And what did they do? They used the CMF adoption to try to justify their violations of the Math Placement Act. Okay, so already school districts, you know, may, it may not be binding, but they're, they are following the guidance and they're using it to justify their decisions. And Jelani, just put some brass tacks on this. Let's say you're a student that could take Algebra 1 in eighth grade, but you didn't. You took it in ninth grade because of guidance, soft or hard. What's the difference in your high school math trajectory from taking Algebra 1 in ninth instead of eighth grade? What's the difference that it makes for kids? Right. So the standard thing is Algebra 1, then Geometry, then Algebra 2, right? Then if you're going the calculus route, pre-calculus, then calculus. That's five years of courses, right? High school is only four years. 
So if you take algebra one in ninth grade, that means if you follow that normal trajectory, you're not going to reach calculus by the time you graduate. So, you know, some of what they say is, well, double up or take summer compression courses, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the standard route would not have you finishing calculus in 12th grade if you take algebra one in ninth. San Francisco is, by the way, is an interesting example of this experiment because uh, they did go to an uh, absolutely not allowing anybody to take algebra in eighth grade. Now, the what that policy did was replace a policy before that, which was algebra for everyone. So San Francisco had a policy in place for about eight years where everyone must take algebra in eighth grade. And then they switched to nobody can take algebra in eighth grade. And again, it was based on equity, both of those policies. And they, they're the opposite policy. I mean, they can't both be right. And, and the idea was the only way we can achieve equity is by having everybody take the exact same math course at the same time. And that's not a route to equity at all. So we'll get back to the lower grades here in a minute, but it's time for grade it on the report card. You ready? <laughs> Let's go. Jelani, laptop keyboards. Laptop keyboards. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't know if you know, but I, I, I used to be one of the fastest typists in the world, and uh, I'm a lot slower on laptop keyboards. So, therefore, I'll give them a B minus. What's the problem with them? Why does it slow you down? Um, I, part of it, it it's, a pro it's an issue not just with laptop keyboards, but also even with full desktop keyboards. They're not buckling spring, right? They have these like sensors underneath, which doesn't give the right amount of tactile feedback. Fair enough. Tom, doing geometry in sequence as opposed to, you know, concurrently with some other math class in high school. Mm, I don't really have an opinion on that. Um, currently, we do the sandwich. We have geometry between the two algebra courses. And there have been a lot of people who have been critical of that, but I don't think we know if that's a good way of doing things or whether it should be changed. Classic Tom Loveless doesn't give an opinion where he doesn't have evidence to back it up. Uh, Jelani, education in Ethiopia. Education in Ethiopia. Um, you know, I, I do run a summer program there. I teach uh, algorithms to high school kids. Um, the kids that I get in that class surprise me with how strong their math skills are. So um, that's a positive. That being said, my program does attract the strongest kids in the country. So I couldn't tell you much about how the median kid is doing. Fair enough. Tom, the What Works Clearinghouse. Uh, a minus. And the minus comes from the fact that they're very slow in producing the reviews. But uh, they pay attention to the quality of research and that's in the quality of studies and they put high value on empirical work and all those are good things. Jelani, coding instruction in American high schools. I'll pass on that. My high school, my high school. Okay. So let me, let me judge it by my high school when I was a kid. Um, that would be a low grade. Ninth grade, we basically just learned how to use Microsoft Word and Excel, right? And I think in twelfth, in eleventh grade, we're learning just how to like take a computer apart. But actual programming instruction, I had to teach a lot of it to myself in twelfth grade. I did have one teacher who briefly taught us some basic, but most of high school was you know missed opportunities. 
Tom, Common Core Standards. Uh, C minus. They're okay. They have some good parts. They also have some terrible parts. And the terrible parts of mathematics is actually, um, were even made more terrible by the California math framework. Jelani, the potential of AI in education. Hmm. You know, I think the potential there, one of the things I've heard is like, you know, really personalized learning. Um, I think there's okay, potential. I think, I think there's huge potential. I'll say there's high potential. Whether that's realized, I whether that will be realized and how well it'll be realized, I don't know. Fair enough. Tom, the state of education policy today. I'm going to say B. Why give it such a high grade? There's many folks who would give it under a B. Well, you should ask them why they're giving it less than a B. <laughs> Tom, I'm going to end on you. The NAEP long-term trend. Um, a. And its main value is we have data going back to 1969. And the other thing about the long-term trend, as opposed to the main NAEP, is the long-term trend doesn't, it really hasn't changed. And, and uh, that's an important thing. The main NAEP is based on the NCTM standards, at least the main NAEP in math. And in reading, the main NAEP was a compromise between sort of whole language balance literacy people and the phonics people and, and some of the other people who were literacy scholars. So the main NAEP, the frameworks became political documents, which means they had to bring in everybody. They had to pitch a big tent, bring everyone in, and they're compromised to death, including a lot of things that don't belong there. All right. Thanks for playing great. Tom, wanting to pick back up on the California math framework, we talked a good bit about middle and high school. The framework makes recommendations for earlier grades. Um, you touched on these, but there's some important concepts to understand here. And that's like math facts, algorithms, and fluency. What are those? Why do they matter? And how does the California math framework influence how California teachers will approach them? Yeah. The standards in California require um, that basic facts are known by memory, from memory is the wording. With addition in by the end of second grade, addition facts, so that's like through nine plus nine equals 18. And in multiplication, um, it'd be like nine times nine equals 81. And the, the multiplication facts have to be known from memory by the end of third grade. The California math framework, uh, and it was one of the earlier versions I did uh, just a search, a word search. Every time the word, the word memory or memorize or memorization was mentioned 27 times and always in a disparaging fashion. Um, and this is typical of kind of math reform logic. Like I said, it's been going on for 100 years. Memorization has always been um, something condemned by math reformers. And the California math framework is no different in, the, in that regard. So we have standards that call for kids to know basic foundational facts. 
And yet the framework is either silent on the topic of how to do that, how to help kids learn those basic facts, or uh, it disparages the idea of memorization, which is called for in the standards. So that's a problem. And Tom, if students get an insufficient grounding in basic math facts and fluency, what's the expectation for their long-term mathematics potential? Well, what happens is it, it overtaxes working memory. If you're a student and the, the first big hurdle that little kids come up against, they're, they're actually whole number of arithmetic that they, they can learn rather quickly. But when they hit fractions, fractions become a big problem. It's just a much more abstract concept for uh, not just kids, but even adults. And if your working memory has to be devoted to, let me think, what is uh, seven times eight? Well, gee, six times eight is 48. And so I'll just add eight onto that and I'll get 56. If you're going through all that rigmarole and you don't know immediately that seven times eight is 56, you're taxing your working memory and you won't understand. You can't then devote the, the intellectual resources to understanding fractions. Uh, which is what you know what the objective is. So th that's the reason why these foundational skills, both basic facts and algorithms, are really important for kids to master. It doesn't make them robots. It actually liberates them so they can go on and do higher level, uh, more complex cognitive tasks. Tom, this framework has a lot of focus on cultural responsiveness. Can you walk us through that? I mean, what is that supposed to mean? And what does it mean in practice? Well, the way the framework talks about it is that kids need to recognize themselves in uh, the work that they're doing, in the mathematics that they're doing. And I think, you know, I, I, I think there is some truth to that. Um, you don't want to have kids who feel they've been locked out of mathematics, either because of gender or race or ethnicity or language or or any other uh, reason. So I, I do think there's something to that. It's, it's just that um, the way in which the framework goes about trying to attain that goal isn't necessarily effective. And that's the main problem I have, have with it. I, I do think, just to comment on the culture war aspect of the framework, I think it's a red herring. And I think the defenders of the California framework are using the culture wars aspect of it as a political defense. You know, they're trying to characterize all the critics of the framework as being some right wing uh, conspiracy that's, you know, attacking social justice that that. I haven't written a word about social justice. Uh, I've only written my critique of the framework based on the content of mathematics. And the content of mathematics is what is flawed in this document. The other stuff, I think, is just noise. Jelani, on the cultural responsiveness front, you've been in some friction on this publicly. Uh, how would you describe your perspective on how to appropriately use cultural responsiveness in mathematics instruction and how that sits vis-a-vis -vis the California math framework? I, I mean, I, I have no strong opinions on that. I mean, like Tom, um, 
you know, I, I haven't, the open letter that I wrote, any criticisms I've ever given about the math framework have been focused on the math, have been focused on standards. I haven't really, haven't waded into the social justice issue at all. Um, I mean, I think I have mentioned equity and social justice, but kind of in the reverse, where in our first open letter, we mentioned, look, actually, we think, you know, some of these changes like the anti-acceleration policies would would set us backwards on equity, not not forwards, right? Um, I think that's the most I've ever said about social justice, and I, I don't really have much more to say than that. So, Tom, the framework and a lot of the motivation seems to have been concerns for equity. There is an indisputable achievement gap in the country. Um, you know, broad strokes question, how equitable do you think math education is in the country and in California more specifically? Well, the outcomes, clearly there are gaps. I mean, there, there are gaps between uh, socially advantaged and socially disadvantaged groups. There are gaps between different racial groups. There are gaps between language groups also, it not, and not just in math, but in reading as well. So the gaps exist. The question is whether changing instruction will help close those gaps. And that's where the evidence completely evaporates. There really is no evidence of that. Um, the California math framework, you know, we do have some data in terms of the San Francisco Unified School District essentially piloted some of the recommendations in the California math framework. And it's been a disaster for equity in San Francisco. Uh, SFUSD has some of the largest gaps post-reform um, in the state. So the question is, yes, we have gaps, but the question is, what do we do about them? And we need to come up with other other ways of addressing those gaps, like, for instance, very aggressive tutoring programs that take kids who are struggling with mathematics or struggling with reading and then try to get them, you know, to accelerate in terms of their learning. That, that seems to me a more productive strategy than some of these other ideas. And Tom, are there any states that you think do a particularly good job at math instruction, particularly on the equity front? Or is it just too hard to connect state frameworks and actions to the influence on achievement gaps? Every single state, I used to use the uh, analogy of Mississippi and Massachusetts, because for decades, those were Massachusetts is one of the highest scoring states, Mississippi, one of the lowest scoring states. Now, Mississippi actually has come up to the median in reading, but um, and they're doing well in math as well. However, the point is this, within every single state in the union, there is a Mississippi-Massachusetts contrast. There, there are districts in every state that are right at the bottom, uh, and they would be nationally. And there are other districts that are right at the top. And what we haven't done, and we've tried this through common standards, every state has common standards that, that the districts within those states uh, adhere to, what we haven't done is actually put a dent in closing any of those gaps. They're, they're all related to socioeconomic uh, status, statistics for these districts, for the schools. We haven't really cracked that nut yet. We don't know how to fix that. 
Jelani, the concerns over equity, particularly over tracking, are big motivators behind the California math framework. In The New Yorker, you were quoted saying, I'm extremely worried that the California math framework is implicitly advocating for certain groups of people to be pushed away from rigorous math courses into essentially a lower track, setting back progress in improving diversity in STEM. Can you flesh that out a little bit that in an effort to detrack, you are potentially guilty of tracking? Right. And, and that, that actually wasn't only about, uh, about detracking. It was also about this data science stuff, right? Because data science is another pathway, which really is another, and I view as another lower track, right? So let me quote, yeah, it forms a track. And let, let me quote to you um, the creator of the most popular high school data science course in the state of California. His name is Rob Gould. He wrote an article in, in uh, fall 2020 called Toward Data Scientific Thinking. And in that article, he talks about some of the learning goals for his course and you know, why he made the course. Okay, So here's one quote. Uh, it should be noted that IDS, that's his course, his data science course, IDS is not intended as a curriculum for elite schools or elite students. Okay. It was developed in close cooperation with Los Angeles Unified School District, blah, 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 which had, in which schools which had 80% of the students below poverty level and 20% English language learners. Okay, so that's one thing he said in that. I just want to say three things he said in that article. There's a second thing he said in it. He said, the existence of alternative pathways is important because Algebra 2 has a high failure rate. Okay, and the failure rate is disproportionately high for African-American and Latinx students. Many educators are justifiably concerned that the calculus pathway institutionalizes racial inequities, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, he says, data science courses like his has, have an important role to play. Okay, that's the second quote. The, the last quote that I want to say is his course contains, there's a quote from him. Um, his course contains not an equal blend of statistics, computer science, and math, okay? But quote, rather consists of a strong core of statistical thinking, carefully selected components of computational thinking, and, this is the important part, just a dash of mathematical thinking. Okay, so, so if, you, if you combine those three parts of the article that he wrote, what is he saying? His course is not really a math course. It contains just a dash of math. He said it himself. He said his course is not for the elite students, right? It's for the black and Latinx students who can't pass algebra two. Okay. So he's saying it's a remedial course. Okay. Yet it's being marketed to kids across the state as the path to STEM jobs, the path to data science jobs. And look, these STEM and data science jobs pay so much. This is the way to go. This is the, the modern math. Why are you taking algebra two? That's what we taught kids hundreds of years ago. Okay. And who's going to fall for that? It's going to be the kids whose parents maybe don't have college degrees, right? whose parents can't give them the proper guidance to realize, wait, this class is not, this is not what I should have my kid taking if I really want them to be ready for college. Okay. And let me just add one other thing about this course that really troubles me. Despite, you know, people know that this stuff is out there. This is, a, this is an article he wrote that's published and it's been mentioned in some of my pushback and pushback of other people. Despite this, in the July 12th meeting in which the California math framework was adopted by the State Board of Education, the California Department of Education had a slot where they gave a presentation 
in that presentation, they had a segment where they praised this course by name. Okay. Despite what I just told you, despite the fact that a committee representing the entire Cal State system, this is a formal committee representing all 23 campuses of Cal State, passed a resolution saying this course IDS does not adequately meet state standards and does not prepare kids for college. So why is the California Department of Education promoting this course in its official presentation to the state board? So that really bothers me. And, you know, like Tom said, I think this whole social justice framing was a red herring. I think the reality is people were pushing a pro data science agenda. They were pushing their own courses. Don't forget, one of the CMF authors has her own high school data science course, which charges teachers for professional development. It's the second most popular high school data science course in the state of California. The first most popular is the one I just told you. It also charges teachers $10,000 roughly for 13 days of training per teacher that school districts are paying. Okay, so my opinion is that there's some shady business going on here. People are pushing an agenda that's not in the best interest of children. And they're wrapping it up in this social justice stuff so that if anyone ever criticizes them, they could try to paint you as a racist or paint you as a MAGA extremist or whatever and provide political cover. But this is not about politics at all. This is just about bad math. Can I add one thing to that? Um, in terms of eighth grade algebra, you know, there are really two ways of approaching or attempting to solve the problem. You could do the hard thing, which is it, it's true that uh, black students, Hispanic students um, are underrepresented in eighth grade algebra courses. Okay, we could do the hard thing and prepare more black and Hispanic students for eighth grade algebra so they're ready for it in eighth grade. Or we could do the kind of shoddy, uh, easy thing, which is just don't let anybody take eighth grade algebra. Just stop everyone from taking it. And my, my idea of equity is more towards the first thing, first solution. Let's prepare more kids so they're ready for algebra. That's going to be difficult to do. We don't know how to do it in large numbers yet today, but let's try. And that's a better solution in my mind than uh, banning anyone from taking it at all. So the California math framework, Galani, as you said, passed in July. Is it just out of the gate and that's that? Is there anything that can be done to police the changes or correct some of the potential missteps contained in it? Jelani? Yeah. So, I mean, to be precise, um, what happened in the vote on July 12th is that basically the, the management of the, you know, the, the responsibility to produce the finalized California math framework was passed from the California Department of Education to the state board. And the state board in that meeting, and I was there, I drove to Sacramento with my wife to be there in person for that. They didn't say this is the final California math framework. They said, we're going to spend the next, you know, I, they, you know, we, I don't know exactly how long, but we're, we're going to make some edits to this document uh, before it becomes the official California math framework. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I think there are some things that could happen that are positive. Like, for example, there was some language, I forgot if it was chapter nine or 10, which was still anti-acceleration, anti-algebra one in eighth grade despite the fact that the president of the state board in the meeting said all that stuff had been removed. And I, I think it was just an, based on her saying that it had been removed, but it's still being there in one sentence in one chapter. 
I think that was an oversight. I think they're going to go back and remove that. Um, the data science thing, I told you there was a last minute addendum. Despite the last minute, uh, the, the last minute addendum said, we're going to remove these recommendations to take data science for people who want to go to four-year public universities. But it's still there. It's still there as a path for other people. So presumably what that means is it's for the people who aren't going straight to the UC or to Cal State. Maybe for people who don't go to college. Maybe for people who go to community college. But you know, there's still a problem there, which is, does everyone know whether or not they're college bound in 10th grade? Because that's when the decision has to be made, right? So people who make the wrong decision in 10th grade and sign up for data science in 11th grade instead of algebra two have just cut themselves off from being able to go straight to a four-year public university in the state of California. So I, that's a new problem that was basically introduced in the July 12th meeting itself. Um, I don't know if they're going to address that in the final cleanup of the document, but um, yeah, I mean, there's still, there's still time for them to, to fix things and clean up, but I, I don't know. I don't know how much will actually happen. I think the, uh, the battle will shift at the state level. Now the process will shift to the instructional materials ad adoption, which used to be called in the old days textbook adoptions, but now textbooks aren't the only thing that are adopted because um, there's so much online. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a committee appointed to, to adopt instructional materials based on this framework. And so that's going to be a very critical thing to watch coming in the next few months. And then secondly, the battle will shift to the local level because, yes, it's true, these frameworks are merely suggestive, but... Uh, you know, one comment on that is that there have been op-eds written by members of the math framework who said, this is a revolution in math. Well, you don't really, you can't say it's a revolution in math, but gee, anyone can do whatever they want. It, those two things aren't compatible. So, um, but the, the next battleground will be in local districts. There will be a lot of local districts that will not adopt this framework, and there might even be some that explicitly reject this framework. And we'll, we'll have to see what happens in each district. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Jelani Nelson and Tom Loveless. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review so other people will find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>